Welcome to the 51st episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is five things Josh Brown's firm does differently and how it resulted in over 100x growth in six years. Honest, authentic, and relatable advice from Josh Brown, industry thought leader and CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com and on advisorhub.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other podcast resources. If you're new to the series, I encourage you to visit diamond-consultants.com slash independence 101 for the top five episodes that will help you get up to speed on the basics of the independent space, plus links to other episodes you may have missed. And if you're listening to the series on the Apple Podcast app, be sure to leave a star rating and review. It serves as a guide to us, as well as your colleagues in the wealth management industry who may be searching for valuable content to tune into. Few names in the wealth management industry are as well known as that of my guest on this episode. Josh Brown is the CEO and co-founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management an RIA with over a billion dollars in assets. But most know him as the prolific voice on CNBC's Halftime Report and from his no-holds-barred commentary on other major media outlets. Yet it's the Reform Broker blog that served as the catapult to popularity, which led to authoring two books, his own video series and podcast, a robust social media presence, and much more. What many don't know is that Josh started his journey as a cold-calling broker at the age of 19. He got his Series 7 while attending the University of Maryland and worked for several small regional broker-dealers before deciding to make the switch to become an investment advisor. Then, in 2013, he started Ritholtz Wealth Management with partner Barry Ritholtz. As it states on his website, Josh calls it like he sees it, and occasionally will make you laugh. I'm really excited to have him on the show. He's super smart, delightful, and his story and narrative are both objective and authentic in ways few others can match. So let's get right to it. Josh, thank you so very much for making the time to talk with me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Mindy. You bet. I want to jump in by talking about your background. I know in reading about you, you got your start in the industry at all of 19, 19 years of age as a cold calling broker. Love to hear a little bit about that experience. Well, I was in between freshman and sophomore year at school, and I really didn't know like how to spend my summer. And my dad was playing golf on Long Island with all of these stockbrokers. And this is just like that moment in history where being a stockbroker was glamorous and that's where everyone was making a ton of money and there was a ton of interest in the stock market. This predates the online brokerage firms. So if you were a wealthy person in America and you wanted in on the huge bull market, you needed a, a retail broker. That's how you transacted and got research and got IPOs. So if you were one of those brokers, you just had unlimited demand for what you did. So these guys were making tons of money and my dad was just like, hey, my son needs a job. 
can somebody bring him on for the summer? I don't think he really drew the distinction between, let's say, Merrill Lynch and the first firm I started at, which uh, was called Lou Lieberbaum, which was basically a firm with five offices. And he was just like, hey, my friend has a gig for you. And they put me on the telephone immediately. I wasn't licensed, so I wasn't able to sell securities, but you know, I was able to uh, connect a quote-unquote senior broker with interested investors. And I was good at it, and I loved doing it, and the market was great. So I kind of felt like, hey, this is something I could maybe do for a living. Did you ever think about leaving a boutique firm like that and going to a major brokerage firm like a Merrill Lynch or a Morgan Stanley or something of the sort? Well, first of all, you're using the term boutique very generously. I was trying to be kind, yes. Not, not what I would call it. I really didn't have an awakening about the right way to do this business until the, the financial crisis. In 2007, 2008 is really the first time that I started to question, what am I really doing for people? You know, I loved talking with clients. I loved buying and selling stocks. But it wasn't really until the crisis where I said, none of this is helping anyone. It's just a hamster wheel of good trades, bad trades. I wasn't a financial planner. I wasn't really addressing the big needs that these people had. And to be honest, the clients were self-selecting also. So it's not like these were people who were interested in talking to me about a financial plan. They were gamblers. They wanted to speculate in stocks. And you know, there is a subset of investors that is not interested in long-term investing and is more interested in how much can I make this month? Or is Coke going to outperform Pepsi? And that is the, the need that I was addressing. And it, it really took the crisis for me to say, I have to get with a better firm. I have to figure out how I can really add value to people's lives. And it turned out that at the same time, I also had to switch the clientele I was dealing with. So all three of those things occurred to me at the same time. And it wasn't until I had already been doing retail brokerage for years. Okay, so that brings me to my next point. So now you are a nationally known thought leader, television commentator, and CEO of an RIA firm. So let's talk about the journey. How did you connect with Barry Ritholtz, who is your partner in Ritholtz Wealth Management, and how did you get from there to here? The very abbreviated version is that in 2008, my business was basically washed out. The stock market had declined by 50%, even the best quote unquote, blue chip stocks were crushed. Even the best mutual fund managers were down big. And I had seen the dot-com crisis, but I wasn't really managing money while that happened. I was working for people who manage money. So it didn't have the same effect on me. This really affected me. And I kind of had this crisis of consciousness where I said, you know, I'm doing all this stuff every day, but it's not really helping anyone. And like everyone else, I didn't know what my future was, but I had nothing to lose. And I had things that I wanted to say. I'd always been a big reader and I loved to write. And I just said, you know what? I had nothing else going on. I started a blog and you know, it took five minutes to get a WordPress. I bought a domain for $13 and I was off and running. And I went to my compliance officer and I'm like, I'm going to do a blog. He's like, oh, this is just what we need. You know, like the world is melting down around anything to do with Wall Street. And he's like, now I have to vet your blog posts. I kind of pushed my way through that objection. He goes, you know what? No one's going to read it anyway. Fine. I'll let you do it. So I start venting, Mindy. And I'm not saying I don't think that what I wrote was very good, but I do think it was extremely honest. And I think that this is a period of time where people all over the country and all over the world actually are reading blogs to get the truth 
because what they're hearing in the media doesn't sound right. The media is taking sound bites from the PR departments of major banks. But then there are people like Barry Ritholtz who are like, no, 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 no. This is all bullshit. Here's what's really going on with housing. Here's what's really happening with subprime mortgages. This is the transmission mechanism by which weakness in this area leads to weakness in that area. And here's how the whole thing works. And from reading people like Barry and Eddie Elfenbein and Eve Smith and Bill McBride at at Calculated Risk and some of the great bloggers of that era, I said, I think I have something to contribute to this conversation from the perspective of someone who's dealing with retail investors. So I started to write. And again, it wasn't great. I'm not proud of the pros, or, but I, I told the truth and I said what I really saw going on. I was also of the age at that time. I was like 30 or 31 or whatever I was, but I had friends at Lehman Brothers, at Bear Stearns, at Goldman Sachs, at DLJ, if you can remember that that, that existed. Like I had friends at those firms who were involved in mortgage and real estate and hedge fund. And so I knew a lot of stuff that was happening that wasn't being talked about. So I started talking and I found an audience almost immediately. And I always tell people, if I didn't, I probably would have stopped because blogging is daily. You can't really blog every two weeks and and get any traction. But fortunately, people started reading, so I kept going. So I want to unpack a couple of things you said. I was smiling as you were talking because my experience just in doing this podcast has been exactly the same. On a whim, two years ago, I said, you know, everyone's asking us the same questions about what it means to be independent. So let me go out and do a couple of episodes and tell them. And all of a sudden, I began to get an audience. And just like you, it was one of those things where I realized that people were hungry for sort of objective truth. And if they went to talk to an independent broker-dealer, they'd be sold on how great that broker-dealer was, but there was no real place to get objective input about it. And so I think there's a couple of comments to make about that. One, it's extraordinary what you've built, and I want to talk more about sort of your following and what that you know daily blog or rant, as you call it, uh, morphed into, but also to say that it's a good message for anybody listening, that if you've got something smart and earnest and thoughtful to say, and you're consistent about it, and you're objective, and you're doing it with integrity, people will listen. And it's a wonderful way to build a business. Mindy, you have a great niche. And I think you're probably the only person when the topic of recruiting and career moves within brokerage and financial advisory comes up, you're like the name that everyone associates with it. You've done an amazing job being in the press and you've built a great business. So if I were on the outside watching you start a podcast, I would have said, don't worry, this is totally going to work. But I get where you're saying like, who knows what's going to happen, but I would have told you you're going to succeed. As far as like my version of that, the truth is I was very lucky because when I started, there weren't a million financial advisors trying to write blogs. So one lesson, you know, and I always like to ascribe the role of luck to these things, but being early sometimes is more important than being great. I was not great. I was okay. Now, a lot of what I did to build a following was to go the opposite way that most people would think. Like most people would say, okay, I present myself as an authority and that will build my audience. And I did the opposite. I said, I don't really know about any of this stuff. So here are five articles that I'm reading about it today. And I set myself up as somebody who was on a journey of trying to get smarter 
rather than as someone who, here's how the whole world works according to Josh Brown. And I think because I was very open and honest about the fact that I was trying to figure this stuff out alongside the audience, I think it was somewhat endearing to people. And I think I didn't turn people off. Well, I think that's right. I think it's just that they saw themselves in you. You were them. And that's what they were able to relate to. I think that's true. I think that's true. I want to make it clear for everyone. So today, you live two professional lives, maybe more than that, but two that I know of. One is CEO of an RIA it's like, firm. It's like five. Ridholtz Wealth <laughs> Management. And two is commentator, blogger, thought leader, writer, all of that. So I want to talk about both. So let's first talk about the blogging and the writing. So you go from being a young guy, not with necessarily a whole lot to say, but you're a very relatable guy to who you are today. So tell us about the writing you do today, who's following you and why. I don't think much has changed from what I was writing about in 2008, 2009. The topics have changed, but it's still a journey of discovery. And I always tell people that I have learned way more from blogging than anyone has ever learned from reading my blog. So I guess I'm the teacher and the student. If you go through like 10 random posts of mine from the last month, you'll see that a lot of what I'm doing is relaying the research and insights of others. And maybe I'll build on it, or maybe I'll say I disagree with it, or maybe I'll take two opposing viewpoints on one topic and explain why there might be merit to both sides of the argument. That's what I'm doing on the blog. Now, there are some subjects where it's very much my lane. I know it better than anyone, and I'm not afraid to say no, I have this right. But that's rare. In most cases, I'm trying to connect my readers with information that I think will help them understand how things work or what's really happening. So I don't think the blog itself has really changed all that much. Now, I'm lucky because I'm surrounded by people that work with me that are producing a lot of this research that I'm relaying. So a lot of times you'll see me link to Michael Batnick, who writes The Irrelevant Investor, He's my firm's director of research. Or you'll see me link to Ben Carlson, who I would consider to be the finest investment writer of our generation. Ben is our director of institutional asset management. Or I'll link to um, Nick Majuli, who writes Of Dollars and Data. He's our analytics manager. He writes once a week, and it's a deep dive into data analytics to make an investing point. So I have people I work with whose research is phenomenal and they will use it to tell a story on their blog. And a lot of the time I'm linking to their stuff in addition to linking to the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg. But it's really, again, it has not changed. It's still about how do we get smarter? How do we figure things out? How do we learn from what's happening? And what are the takeaways that matter to us as advisors or as investors? So has your intent of writing changed over time? Meaning, you first started because what the heck, I'm trying to figure this out and I'm learning alongside people. Has the intent of doing this writing changed to grow the business, whether it be your own personal voice or Ridholtz Wealth Management, which we'll get to in a second, to share information, to a, a combination of other things? What's the motivation these days? So I'm really inspired by something that my partner Barry's wife once told. So Barry is the original finance blogger. Barry was writing on GeoCities in 1998. And that's when it would take you a half hour to write a post and then another half hour to code it. Like there was no WordPress and there was no such thing as the word blog, by the way. Web blogs came along later. So that's how long he's been at it. And his wife once said, 
Barry is functionally unemployed, meaning if there was no one paying him and if there was no reason to do what he's doing, and even if there were no readers, he would still be blogging. And I find that so inspirational. Like this is a guy that is just doing what he loves and writing what he wants to write about. And he did it for 10 years before anyone paid attention to it, or maybe five years before anyone. So I try to stay in that mindset, Mindy, to answer your question. Like, it's great that we've built the business on the blogs. And believe me, as somebody who cold called for 10 years, I could tell you this is way better to have people coming to us rather than us having to knock down doors. Believe me, it's way better. But honestly, I don't think I would stop either way because I love the process of reading and then writing my thoughts down about what I've read and write about my experiences. I relate to that a thousand percent because I blog not daily, but weekly and it's grown the business and it's certainly increased our exposure and credibility, but that is not my intent. It never was. My intent was I discovered the fact that I actually like to write. I discovered the fact that I had stuff to say. It feels soulful to me to write it and I'm going to continue to do it. And the fact that thousands of people read it is just a wonderful benefit, but it's not the sole motivation. So I totally get what you're saying. Yeah, that's really where I am mentally. And I and I don't know if the Josh Brown three years from now is like, oh, I don't want to write another blog post. But I mean, it's 11 years. So I'm obviously motivated by something because I don't have to keep doing this. I just, I love it. I love my audience. And I like the way it feels when I write something and it connects with people. And people email the firm and they're like, this thing Josh wrote really helped me. And they might be referencing something I wrote seven years ago. Like, So I really get a lot of enjoyment out of that. And the fact that it's helping us build a following and that our clients start off as fans, that's just incredible. And I never take it for granted. Yeah, I'm with you. Well, it is extraordinary what you've built and you should feel very proud of it. Let's back up for clarity. So tell us now about your day job as CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Who is Barry Ritholtz? And tell us a little bit about the RIA firm. Well, Barry and I met at actually a financial blogger get-together in Coronado Island. Our mutual friend, Howard Lindzen, invited me. And he actually said before I got there, he goes, you got to meet Barry. You know, I read his blog. I read your blog. You guys should be friends. And Barry and I have a lot in common in our background, both from Long Island. He's from an older generation than I am, but we have a similar vibe in terms of like the way we think about things. So I met Barry there. And at that time, it's 2010, I'm leaving the retail brokerage side. I have an offer to work at a, at a Manhattan branch of LPL. I'm going to go all RIA is, is, is what I'm trying to do. And I already know I'm doing that. I just don't know how. And I don't have enough money under management where I could like launch my own firm. So I meet Barry by the pool and we talk for an hour. And by the end of the hour, he's like, okay, when you come back to New York, you have to meet my partner. We're starting an RIA and you would be perfect. So I get back to New York. I have like three voicemails from Barry. What are you doing? Come over, come over. So that was great. And when I get there, I realize that Barry has a big problem and I have the opposite problem. Barry's problem is he's not client facing. Barry was always a chief strategist at brokerage firms. So he was like the advisor to advisors. And so he doesn't manage money for clients. He's not a financial advisor, but he has a million people coming to him like, Barry, 
you know, I read Bailout Nation, your book. I read your blog. Can you just manage my money for me? You seem to know what's going on. And he can't. So I have the opposite problem. I know how to work with clients, but nobody wants to work with me because I'm nobody. Nobody knows who I am. I didn't have the pedigree of having been at a big firm. So we have like this opposite issue going on. So we decide to team up and immediately it's just this cyclone of activity. So Barry writes a blog post, a million people read it, the phones light up, you know, people are emailing, how can I get money to Barry? And I'm there on the front lines answering those phone calls and emails. And I can't open the accounts fast enough. And this is like prehistoric in terms of like being a registered investment advisor. We don't have a CRM. I'm like using a yellow legal pad to write down people's date of birth and and how they want their accounts titled. And then as far as the portfolio, we're doing like a mutual fund mix that's an asset allocation. And again, compared to what we're doing now, fairly primitive, but it works. And then it gets too big for me to handle myself. So at that point, we happen to have been lucky enough that a gentleman named Chris Venn who is now a founding partner of Ritholtz Wealth. He's at a Wells Fargo branch up in Syracuse, but he's from he's from the New York Metro and he wants to come back. He comes in ostensibly to say hi to us. And it turns out he's actually interviewing with us, but we don't know it at the time. And Chris says, all right, show me what you're doing for clients. Like, what's your CRM? I hold up my yellow legal pad. He's like, okay, that's great. <laughs> show me your portfolio. Show me what you're doing for financial planning. I say, I'm not a financial planner. We're not doing anything. So he goes, okay, I'm hired <laughs> and I'm going to move my family back to the New York area from Syracuse and I'm going to come work with you guys. And we were like, okay, I guess that sounds good. So he basically turned a meeting into an interview and then he hired himself at the same time. But Chris nailed it. Something that Barry and I were not equipped to do on our own, but is now literally the centerpiece of our client service model. Chris said, you could have the best asset allocation in the world. If it's not married to a financial plan, and if you don't have a true service model for clients, it's going to go nowhere. And he was dead right. And bringing him in really accelerated us as being more than just two guys who were on TV. It really turned us into the start of a, of a practice that would one day become a firm. And so tell us about that firm. So how has it grown over time? How much under management? Do all the clients come because of the media presence? What is it? How has it evolved? Well, the fourth partner, Michael Batnick, joined shortly after Chris as our director of research. And Michael took a look at what we were doing with the portfolios, spoke with Chris about what types of clients we had and what kind of portfolios that they actually need and looked at some of our materials where we explain our investing process, and he completely revamped the whole thing. And so then we had all the pieces of the puzzle together. We had client service, we had financial planning, we had real portfolios and real research around those portfolios. And then we had Barry as arguably one of the best faces and names for, for the firm that you could ask for, because Barry's whole reputation was about telling the truth and saying things that were uncomfortable within the industry, but that would resonate with investors. So we had all the pieces of the puzzle together. And by default, I became the CEO. I do think I have some leadership qualities. I'm not saying it's like we flipped the coin, but I never set out to be a CEO. Like it was never my intent. It was never anywhere within my wildest dreams. So we launched the firm in September, 2013. This month we turned six years old, Mindy. And 
What's funny is I think we were like 86 million about to launch the firm. We were a practice at someone else's RIA. Two days before we were going to launch the firm, we lost our biggest client. So we had a client who had sold the business and one of the big wirehouses was the investment banker on the sale. And he wasn't getting his cash for a long time. But, you know, this guy had sold his business for millions and millions of dollars and he wanted to start living that lifestyle now. So he needed a portfolio loan. He didn't want to sell out his holdings. He needed somebody who could make a huge loan against them. And we were just not in that business. Like we're fiduciaries. We're not selling loans to people for LIBOR plus one or whatever. So this guy got pulled by a wirehouse that happened to have been his investment banker. And so we said, oh man, we're about to launch this thing. And we just lost uh, 18 million in assets or whatever it is. But we <laughs> we plowed forward, uh, the four of us and an assistant and we got it off the ground. We found space in Manhattan that we could barely afford at the time. And we buckled up and we said, all right, let's do it. Something incredible happened. The day we made the announcement, and that blog post is still on my site. You can see it. The day we made the announcement that we launched our own firm and it would be called Ritholtz Wealth Management, we literally got like 200 emails from people who had been either readers of mine or fans of Barry who said, you know, some version of, this is what I've been waiting for. I want to be your first new client at the new firm. So we had this tremendous tailwind from the enthusiasm of our readers and fans. And that I think is, is probably what saved us because I don't know if we were prepared to launch our own firm at 60 something million in assets versus the 80 or 90 we thought we had. So that was like a, a huge moment of affirmation for us. And a lot's changed, but a lot has stayed the same in the ensuing six years. And so how much under management today in six years? I think we're north of $1.1 billion as of right now. Amazing. Depending on what Apple stock is doing and, and the 10-year treasury. Right? Yeah. It sounds extraordinary, and it is. But from where I sit, it's not that extraordinary because I found the same. I think that as we said earlier, when you are earnest and honest and relatable and giving people information and perspective that they can't get elsewhere, that is so much more important than being the one with the hottest investment idea or, I mean, you know, so much of what an advisor does today is commoditized. And I think that the only way to really differentiate is as a human being, being the kind of person and offering the kind of service that they can't necessarily get elsewhere. I'm going to say that's partially true. I think so much of what an asset manager does today is commoditized. And maybe we're saying the same thing. I don't think that the personal relationship portion of, of this, which frankly is everything, the, the relationship between the, the advisor and the client, not only do I think it has not been commoditized, I actually think it's become more valuable than ever given the demography of the United States, um, given where asset prices are, uh, given how high stakes everything seems to be these days. I think it's the personal relationship um, that is the, the piece that is of most value. And all of the other stuff from financial planning to asset management to what ETF do I buy, you know, how much how much can I take out a year and, and still retire and all like I think all of that other stuff is important, but it's in service to the relationship. And I don't think there's been any commoditization there yet. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And if I misspoke, let me correct that. I agree. I think it's the investment performance part, the planning and the stock selection and the asset allocation and all of that that has become largely commoditized. I think the relationship and the service model is tantamount to everything. And I think we're saying the same thing. I want to shift for a second, though, to something you said that um, for you, you were you were amazed how you started saying smart stuff that resonated with people. And suddenly today, it's brought you to a $1.1 billion firm and growing. What message do you think, what can an RIA or a prospective RIA take from that? How can they use that information to help make them better? What's the message there? I'm going to give you two things that I think are our secret weapon. They can be replicated by someone else, but there's no shortcut It requires an unbelievable amount of effort, but it can be done. These are the two things that I view as our secret weapon. The first thing is people don't randomly become clients of ours because we bump into them at a charity gala or our kids go to the same private school. Like We have 17 client-facing advisors, and we don't want them doing any prospecting at all. It's not that they can't. It's that we want them to spend their time taking care of the clients of the firm not out there running around trying to find 10 new ones. We'll give them the clients to talk to. We just want them to serve our clients. And the reason why we can do that is because almost all of the clients start off as fans. And let me tell you, Mindy, what that does to the cycle of somebody inquires with us to when they become a client. I can't say definitively that it cuts the period of time in half or like I know it speeds up that cycle. I just don't know mathematically to what degree, but I know it helps. So if a regular person meets an advisor somewhere, that might be a one-year dance before they decide, hey, you know what? I'm going to become a client of this, this person. With us, people come to us already feeling like they know us because we're writing every day and not just me and not just Barry. Again, there are eight of us creating content on an almost daily basis. So the people that come to us We've already gotten a lot of that hard part out of the way. Like, do I trust this person? Do I think they're knowledgeable? Where do I think they stand in terms of their market philosophy? People already know that about us before they reach out. So I know that that shrinks the dance, the period of time. So that's number one. The second part of that is if somebody does inquire with us and they are a fit, meaning they should be a client, there is a very high likelihood that they will become one. And we almost never hear that someone is interviewing us and three other firms. That's what a traditional financial advisor prospecting situation looks like. With us, it's usually, I always knew I was going to give you guys money. And now I just sold my business and I have the money to give you. But I've been a fan of Barry's since 2005, or I've been reading Josh since 2011. We hear a lot of that stuff. So a lot of the hard parts already out of the way. And we will not take on a client and build them a portfolio and invest for them if they haven't gone through an extensive three to four call or meeting process where we've built out a financial plan and we've set up the objectives and the goals of, of what we're trying to do. We will not. So if someone calls up 1-800-RITHOLTS and ends up talking to one of the advisors and they say, look, I have $2 million just invested for me, we absolutely will not take that money. And if I were at a wirehouse my regional manager or complex manager would say, what are you nuts? Open the account. We'll find something to sell them. 
So we have a very intense upfront process. People have to complete an entire financial plan before we will invest anything for them. The other stipulation is we won't take part of their money. It's all or none. And it's not because we're snobs or we think we're too good for a small dollar amount. We are literally selling people on the idea that we have to execute the financial plan in order for the portfolio to mean anything. So can every firm do that? Yes. The problem is if you don't have as high a probability that that person will become a client, think about how much time and effort you've invested on nothing. We're doing hours of work for people before they pay us a nickel. How can we do that? Well, we can do that because we know there's a very high probability of the right people becoming clients. So we can make that upfront investment. And a lot of firms can't. And the reason we can make that upfront investment is because we know they're already fans of ours and they're probably going to come on board. So that is one of the secret weapons. And then the other one, which I'll explain a little bit more quickly, every day things happen in the economy, in the stock market. The tweeter in chief has things to say interest rates, you know, geopolitics and oil refinery blows up. There are always things happening that I don't, I don't want to say frighten investors, but they introduce concern into a high net worth investor's life. Someone that's got millions of dollars at stake, they are paying attention to this stuff. Now, most of them in this country have an advisor and they don't want to call the advisor every time something makes them nervous. Right? They're like, this looks bad. I sure hope my financial advisor, Susan, is, is paying attention to this. Our clients know that we will have a take on all of this stuff. All they have to do is go to one of our blogs, listen to one of our podcasts, even go on Facebook or Twitter or any of the places where we're doing content. And it's not that we will have an answer that's the perfect answer. It's that they know we're paying attention and we're fully engaged and both of our hands are on the steering wheel. And that is, a, I think, a huge advantage. And when advisors come and join our firm and they leave places, I'm not going to get into individual firm names, but they leave other RIAs or they leave brokerage firms and they bring their clientele and they join us, that's one of the things that they hadn't even counted on being a benefit, all of a sudden being an incredible benefit to them because their clients say, hey, Dave, I know we didn't speak this week. But I was a little bit nervous about that thing where the repo rate market blew up, and I didn't really understand it. But then I saw Ben Carlson wrote something about it at a wealth of common sense, or I saw Josh Brown on TV giving some context about it, and I didn't panic. Those two things that we're doing, other firms can do them, but it requires an enormous investment of time and effort and energy and a lot of luck and being clever in order for them to build something like that. And no one else that I know of really has anything like that right now in the space. I have to assume that other firms will rise up and give that a shot, but we haven't seen it yet. And our clients are the beneficiaries of that. So I'm really proud of having built the firm with, with that orientation. Well, you should be really proud. It is unique and extraordinary. And I think the thing is, I know for me, it's not a marketing methodology. It's soulful. I enjoy doing it. So for a firm to do it, it's an enormous investment of time and energy. But if you, it would be hard to sustain. It's sort of like doing an exercise program and doing something that you hate. If you don't eventually embrace it, it's never going to be able to be sustained. You need results. If you write a blog post every day for, for 60 days, spend two months, and then like you have the same amount of traffic on day 60 that you had on day 10, you're probably going to give up. And that happens all the time. 
Yeah, well, it's, uh, I mean, I know that too. It's a black hole. You know, you're writing and you feel like nobody's listening and you keep writing and you're writing because it's soulful because or speaking because it's soulful because you enjoy doing it. You can't be doing it because you're waiting for results because otherwise then you'd give up instantly. But I want to shift a little bit and say, looking at the industry at large, we all know that the puck is heading largely toward the independent space. We're watching every day billions of dollars, billions in top teams leaving the wirehouse world to go some version of independence. And the independent ecosystem, the waterfall of possibilities, keeps expanding. And one of the things that strikes me is that we hear advisors at the wirehouses complaining about the inability to differentiate themselves, to speak their mind, to brand themselves, to brand or stand out in any way different than the thousands of others in their market or in their industry. So the things you're doing, the things you're speaking about, the blogs, the podcasts, the television commentary, are those things that you think you ever could have done or that a wirehouse advisor could make work within the confines of a big brokerage firm? No. Yeah, well, that's a simple answer, and I would agree with that. So what is your message then to an advisor at a wirehouse firm who's considering independence with respect to either the notion of being able to differentiate themselves or just what it means to be independent? Well, I want to back up and just make the statement that not everyone has to be a blogging superstar to be a great advisor. And I think that there are great advisors at the wirehouses, and I know a lot of them personally. And I know how hard they work, and I know how much their clients appreciate them. So I don't think there's one way to do this. And I honestly, like my path is so ridiculously backwards. I would never, like if I were talking to a 20-year-old who says, I want to be like you guys one day, I would never say, do things the way I did them. I worked at shitty firms for 10 years with nothing to show for it, like no pride, no money. I was broke 10 years after I started as an advisor. Like in 2008, 2009, there were months where I had no paycheck because I just was not selling anything to anyone and I, I just didn't know what to do. So I would never suggest that somebody should go through that just so they could emerge on the other side as a famous finance blogger. So there are people that have had a ton of success within the wirehouse system. And if they're comfortable and they like it and they're happy, they should keep doing that. Now, that's not everyone. And there are a lot of men and women who are at large wirehouse firms and they do feel confined by the fact that the firm's got official mouthpieces and they don't want freelancing financial advisors running around with views that might differ from the house view. I totally get that. For those people that feel that they are being stunted professionally because of those confines, then they should consider independence. But you can hang a shingle and you could move to Dynasty Platform or you could move to, you know, from a, a Raymond James captive to a Raymond James RIA on, on their – like you can do all these different things and it's amazing that there are so many options now. But that doesn't mean all of a sudden the phones are going to light up. And you're going to have 100 new clients you know, knocking down your door. So the thought that I would plant in those people's heads that you're referring to, like, should I go independent? Ask yourself where your next 100 clients are going to come from. Whether you're at Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley or you pick a mountain range or a river near your house and, and name your firm 
Blue Mountain Capital or White River Investment Partner, you know, before you do that and think it's automatically going to be this huge growth spurt for you, you should really have a bigger plan in mind for how you're going to turn that into a bigger firm. Because I don't really think there's going to be room for $50 million RIAs in the near future. Not everyone doesn't have to be billions, but I don't think that these smaller practices with one person or two people, like the clients are going to want succession, peace of mind. They're going to want to know what happens to them if something happens to you. I think the cost of of regulatory compliance goes up, the cost of healthcare and fintech and software, like all of these things are only going in one direction. So to be a $50 million firm three years from now, I'm not saying it'll be impossible. I'm saying it's not going to be glamorous. So you should really have a sense of if you do go out on your own, are you going to be a part of something bigger? Are you going to do your own thing? And if you are, how are you going to get it bigger? Because I think bigger is going to be very important. Yeah. And by bigger, I think we would all agree what we mean is not bigger for the sake of bigger sake, but bigger scale. for the sake of you scale. Need, exactly. You have to have scale. What, you know, people ask, you know, why do you guys do these conferences and why do you guys do so much thought leadership within the financial advisor? We have brought on some incredibly talented financial advisors all over the country. I now have offices set up in Portland, Oregon, in Chicago, Florida, in Orange County, California, Grand Rapids, Michigan, New Orleans, Lafayette. We have brought on some incredible advisors and they've come on not because we recruited them. They were fans. And they said, you know what? I'm running this practice. It's 20 million. It's 50 million. I'm at this firm or I have my own firm, but I'm sharing all your content with my clients. And I just said to myself, why don't I just join these guys and be a part of Red Holtz Wealth? That has been, in addition to organic growth of clients, bringing on like-minded advisors has been really, really key for our growth. So it's not just we want to do it because we want to get bigger. This is more talented advisors that we can put in front of our clients. And this is how we can serve more clients better by having more of us. So Mindy, we have not raised a dollar from private equity or outside investors. We have no interest in that right now. Everything we've done is bootstrapped. All of the advisors that have come to work for us came because they were fans of what we were doing and they agreed with it, just like the clients. And I think if we can keep that going, that'll be the key to doing bigness, but not for the sake of bigness and getting larger because it's better for us, for our clients. We get better pricing from our vendors. We get the benefits of scale, but we're not giving up an arm and a leg for that scale. We didn't sell out 51% of the firm to a hedge fund. We are doing this very methodically and we're doing it in a bootstrap way. Yeah, well, it's the right way to do it. And look, M&A right now in the RIA space is hot and heavy. And the reason it is, is for all the things you're talking about. It's not about, I mean, some firms, I guess, are getting bigger just for the sake of bigness, as you say. But the right firms are doing it because... They're either a one-man band who doesn't have the scale or capacity or succession plan to really ultimately do what's right by clients, and or they're a firm that realizes it's going to take significant investment in, in their own firm in order to grow, and it's probably a good time to look at another firm and say, can one plus one equal three? I read something this morning about a firm where the original private equity investor sold all their shares to a second private equity investor. That is not appealing to me. The idea that it turned the RIA into a bond and the bond is paying interest to outside investors and the people working there are like, 
generating the interest payments on these bonds. We want to be an equity. We don't want to be a bond. And we definitely don't want to be a football where one private equity firm sells us to another. And then we're just like going about our business, trying to help clients. Giving employees ownership of the firm gives us a better future than giving essentially fixed income investors ownership of the firm. So one of the major things that we did last year was bring on our first non-owner equity partners. And by the way, the first person to buy equity in the firm was our office manager and administrative assistant. And she probably, when she joined us six years ago, never would have imagined she would own a piece of the firm one day. It was not something that we discussed, but we made her an equity owner because of how much she's done for the firm before we've made any of the other advisors equity owners. And so if someone's like, well, what does this firm look like in in five years and 10 years? I want the firm to be all employee owned and I want there to be more shareholders than there are now. And every year when we have an advisor who's been with us for three years or more, I want to make those new people the next shareholder. And you know, people always say, you want your employees to act like owners. Well, they're not going to if they aren't owners. Yeah. They might pretend. Yeah. They might go through the motion. Here's what's ironic about that. That's what Wall Street investment firms used to be. They were the great investment firms like Lehman Brothers and Goldman Sachs. They were partnerships. They didn't have outside shareholders. That came later when they all went public. And I think that that idea of the people who work here also own it, I think that's probably what kept them in business for decades. They weren't risking other people's money. They were risking their own. So when they did things in good markets and bad, they all knew the ramifications. We own this. So I don't want to have disinterested second and third hand investors. I'd much rather have the people that live and work within my firm and have two-year-olds, five-year-olds, have hopes and dreams. I want their future to be tied up with the future of the firm. And that's how you get people to act like owners. You make them owners. You know, it sounds so obvious, but so many people have not hit upon that yet. And I think that's something that we're doing right. And what makes it ironic, it's a throwback to old school Wall Street. Yeah, I think you're right. Josh, what about the clients? Do you think that what clients expect from their advisors today has shifted? There are two types of fee pressure. One is nominal. Why am I paying you 2%? I want to pay 1.5. And that's affecting every firm from asset management to financial planners. But the other type of fee pressure is a little bit more invisible to the naked eye. But if you're a business owner, you feel it. If you're an advisor, you feel it to, to maybe a lesser extent. But that other type of fee pressure is, okay, I'll pay you this, but I want more. Or I want what you're doing now, plus I want these other three things. And I think what firms are trying to figure out now is, well, how much more can we offer rather than how can we cut fees? So you see firms getting involved in it more deeply into insurance. You see firms getting more involved into the estate planning process. You see firms filing taxes for their clients. You see firms acting more like family offices and doing things like bill pay. I don't know what the right answer is to that question. How can we do more for all of our clients and have that help justify what they're paying us? But I know that it's part of the answer. So we're on a dual track. We have something called Milestone Rewards. I think we're the only firm in the industry doing this. Basically, we said that on a client's 36th month, we're going to cut their fees by an average of 14% forever going forward. And we're going to do that as a reward, not for the client's loyalty to us, 
but the client's fidelity to their financial plan and their loyalty to their own objectives and goals. So we're looking at it as like a behavioral benefit to them. So if you have a client that makes it three years and they've stuck with the strategy that you've invested them in and they haven't panicked out of the market and they've stayed cool through some volatility, after the 36 month, we're chopping down that fee that we're charging them. And we've got incredible feedback from people. They absolutely love it. They appreciate it. The day their advisor calls them and says, hey, it's our three-year anniversary working together, and now you're qualifying for the milestone reward, it's a really good feeling for everyone all around. So that's on one track. And then on the other track, we are trying to do more for clients than, than maybe we would have done 10 years ago or maybe other firms are doing. And we are trying to introduce these other services like tax consulting, et cetera. So I don't know that every firm has to do it exactly the same way. I'm just talking about what works for us. And of course, like most great firms in every industry, we're guided by what our clients are saying to us. And I can envision a scenario in the near future where we put together a client advisory board. My friend, Cheryl Penny, who I know you've had on the show, gave me this idea. He's got a client advisory board at Dynasty. Now, his clients are RIA owners that are on his platform, but the principle is the same. How great would it be to get feedback directly from the people that you're serving in an organized, ongoing fashion and use that as a guide to whether or not you're pleasing people to the extent that you have to? So I could picture us doing something like that where we ask five clients to join and then maybe we reshuffle it every two years so it's new clients and we're hearing new voices. I do think that that's got to be part of the future is that kind of direct feedback from clients, not ad hoc and random, like somebody sends you a card and says, thank you, but really having ongoing meetings or conference calls with people whom you're actually serving and having them tell you if what you're doing is right or wrong or if they enjoy it or if they want more of something or less of something else. Yeah, well, first of all, kudos to you. I think all of the ideas are great. They're in direct response to what clients want. They're in direct response to what's meaningful to clients and what they're asking you for. But what strikes me the most is the amount of control and freedom you have to come up with these creative solutions. And I think that's what most advisors really want more than anything. We know our clients better than anyone, better than a big firm, and we want to be in control of how we serve them. So I want to ask you one last question because this has been incredibly fascinating, incredibly valuable, could go on forever, but I don't want to take up too much more of your time. But one last question that I like to ask everyone, since you do wear so many hats, what does a day in the life of Josh Brown look like? A typical day. <laughs> Honestly, it's hilarious. Some days I can't even believe like how much I've done in that day. And I'm not going to say it's always great. And I'm not going to say like, oh, this is the life. Like I'm definitely working more on more different things than I ever thought would be possible. And maybe it's taking a toll on me. I can't imagine being at this pace when I'm 52. I'm 42 right now. But what I want to say about that, every single thing I'm doing is something I want to be doing. I enjoy what we're building so much that it's not like I'm like, oh, I wish I could lay on the beach. I really don't want to lay on a lounge chair and read books all day. I don't have that yearning. I take vacations, but that's with my kids, so that's not really vacation. Like someday I'll slow down, but right now 
feel like we have this huge opportunity. We have a lot of attention from the industry. We have a lot of attention from investors. It's good attention. People respect what we're saying and what we're doing, and we're capitalizing on it. And personally, like my own professional growth, I spent the day yesterday at the Delivering Alpha conference for CNBC. I sat on television first with Lee Cooperman, then with Jim Chanos, and then with Cliff Robbins. These are three of the smartest people who have ever professionally managed money. In what world would somebody like me get that opportunity again if I were to give it up now? It would never happen. What, how could it happen? It's, it's almost miraculous to be in the position that I'm in. So I don't want to let it go by and then look back and say, wow, look what you were doing. You threw a 700-person conference in Arizona, got home at four in the morning on Wednesday, and then Wednesday at three o'clock, you were on the New York Stock Exchange doing a television show. That opportunity will not come back if I let it slip. So I love what I'm doing. I enjoy all of the attention that the firm gets. I love the stuff we're writing. I love what we're building for clients. I love hearing feedback from clients. And I want to just keep doing everything for as long as I can. If I get to the point where I say, you know what, this isn't fun anymore. I don't want to fly to Orlando to give a speech to the FPA Association. When I get to the point where it feels like work and it feels like a chore, I'll stop. I'm not insane. <laughs> you know, none of it feels that way right now. Right now, I feel like I'm doing things that it's a one in a million chance that I, I would be able to. So I'm trying to be grateful. And the other thing, and I'm not looking for credit for this, but I just feel strongly about it. The other thing I'm trying to do is give back to the advisor community. And you'll see me link to a lot of other financial advisors. In a lot of industries, people consider that to be competition or, oh, don't talk about the other guy has a good firm or the other guy has a good message. I never feel that way. So when we throw a conference and we have 700 people, uh, 450 of which are direct competitors of ours, we put them on stage. We're like, hey, here's another good advisor. So I think by doing that and elevating other people and linking to people's podcasts and blogs and pointing out that there are other great advisors, not just us, it's not deliberate like, ooh, let me get some goodwill. I just feel strongly that that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And it's, I think it's been really helpful for our firm's reputation that when somebody outside the firm has something good or important to say, not only do we not ignore it, we shed light on it and try to get people to pay attention to that. And, you know, I think that's been critical to our standing in this industry. And again, if I felt like it was a chore, I would stop, but I don't. I really, really love doing that. And I like helping other people because people have helped me. Well, first of all, how lucky you are. And what I call that is you get to live a life of congruence where your values and what drives you, your passions are congruent with how you actually live your life. And I think it's sad how few people in the world actually get to live a life like that. And I think that you're fortunate and it's wonderful. And the rest of the world is a beneficiary as a result, because what you love doing is sharing your ideas and your wisdom with the rest of us. And that helps everyone. So Josh, it has been extraordinarily productive and enlightening and a pleasure I am grateful for your time and your insights and your willingness to share. And I hope we can certainly keep the conversation going. And I thank you a lot. Mindy, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for having me on. Josh's unconventional path 
led to building a firm that's achieved phenomenal growth rooted in five core principles. First, building a firm based on a shared point of view. Second, advisors who focus on client service, not business development. Third, maintaining clients' trust through consistency. Fourth, an extensive onboarding process based on financial planning. And fifth, giving back to the advisor community. Josh is an amazing presence for sure, and I'm so grateful to have had him on the show. In our next episode, we'll get an insider's perspective of one of the industry's first independent broker-dealer models, LPL Financial. Rich Steinmeier, Managing Director and Divisional President of Business Development, and Mark Cohn, Senior Vice President of Strategic Business Development, will join us to share details on how this 30-year-old firm is reinventing itself as what CEO Dan Arnold describes as the next generation of the independent model. It's an interesting and exciting story of an evolving landscape in action, and I hope you'll tune in. Until then, I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the Tools and Resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. Thank you for listening. I also want to thank Advisor Hub for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.